En JCPenney sabemos que nos extrañas y nosotros te extrañamos aún más. ¿Pero qué pasa si te decimos que tenemos una tienda abierta todo el día, todos los días? ¡La tenemos! En JCP.com o en el app de JCPenney. ¿Quieres un traje de baño? ¡Lo tenemos! ¿Algo para estrenar este verano? ¡También! ¿Marcas exclusivas y tus marcas nacionales favoritas? ¡También! Visita nuestra página para los más recientes cupones y aprovecha envío estándar gratis en compras de $49 dólares o más. JCPenney. Aplican exclusiones. Detalles en la tienda o JCP.com. Welcome and thank you for joining us today. You're listening to Society Bites Radio and I'm your host, Dr. Richard Himmer. And I'm Sherry Himmer and this is Authentically You, social interaction for the mind and soul. For the next 25 minutes, we talk about healing and growth from the inside out. Remember, you are 100% responsible for your happiness, joy, and well-being. We're picking up from what we talked about last time with this text that I got from a client asking me. So I want to bring uh, context to it. Um, she, or The client writes, don't know how to answer this. Sooner or later, and this is coming from writings that I have, sooner or later you realize that no one cares. That's what I wrote about the fact that we're, we live in a world where there's so much going on, we're so busy, and you said it really eloquently last time, Sherry. It isn't that no one really cares about us. It's, it's that they're so overwhelmed, distracted by their own life events. Right. So the question is, why on earth would I waste my time with people whom I don't care about and who don't care about me? So that's not unusual. I've got this question before, and it stems back from the addiction recovery years when I was explaining that um, the rules of engagement are, are set up, and this is how I learned them. When I observed people's conversations for years, I just sit outside like in church in the hallways or business functions or any social event. I just sit and watch people, and I'd observe, especially if there were three or four of them sitting around talking. I just kind of was a wallflower, and I realized nobody's listening to anybody else. Right. Nobody cares about what anyone else is saying. They're so busy thinking about their question or how it applies to them. There's a lack of interest in anyone except in their own self. So it wasn't a function of that you're a lousy person or people are lousy people. It's that the reality is people don't care about you till they know you care about them. That's the law of reciprocity. So let's go back a little bit. We've said many times we are hardwired to connect at birth. It is by design that we attach and accept our community, mom, dad, parents. As adults, we don't go back to mom, dad, parents. And as a general rule, especially in today's society, most people didn't attach to mom and dad. There's an abandonment issue. And as mentioned also, we now know there's conclusive research that if you're abandoned in utero, if you have trauma in utero, That's direct causation to cancer. We are seeing that in our friends' lives yeah. as we speak. Yeah. And so the idea is this drive to connect is at the root cause of most anxiety and depression that I, I witness, that I observe. And I get 
at least I feel I get a larger dose than the average bear, given what I do for a living. So the question itself is collusionary because we're hardwired to connect. And when we don't connect, we get sick, literally, mentally, emotionally, and physically, we get sick. Well said. And and yet if we're to say the question that your client pulls, well, why waste my time if nobody cares about me? So what's, so what's the- it's like... We're back to that law of reciprocity, but there's also this idea of expectations. So I need to go connect and have no expectation that anybody will give a hoot about me. So Albert Einstein, the most important decision we make is whether we we believe we live in a friendly or hostile universe. Let me tell you why that means something to me. Some segments ago, months ago, we talked about the coddling of the American mind Mm -hmm. and the three great myths perpetrated right now by the 20 to 40 year old group, for lack of a better descriptor, the the millennials, who grew up in an environment of what are called snowplow parents, heretofore referred to as helicopter parents. A snowplow parent is a helicopter parent on steroids. And a helicopter parent is already maladaptive. So a snowplow parent means the child is has no connection to mom and dad, doesn't learn how to solve, doesn't learn how to get back up, doesn't learn how to process through, has been taught that pain is bad, well, that, therefore that, they move into suffering. <clears throat> um, and you were going to say? I was just going to say that they've plowed away all obstacles for that child, right. so they've never had challenges. And as a result, they've created a habitat, an environment, that their three myths are going on, along with a couple other harmful belief structures. Myth number one, it's a us versus them. Myth number two, emotional reasoning. Myth number three, people are fragile, including themselves. Yep, they've been so, told they're fragile because I, I've I been, can't do this. Oh, it's too hard. I, my parents took all the obstacles out of me. Right. I, had, I had a conversation with um, a 25-year-old this week, and... And she was in the room while I'm talking to my best friend who's in the hospital. And um, we're just commenting about why is it that this age group, and especially women, are... are For whatever reason, it seems that way. With women, are struggling with things that we're like, but when we were that age, and we were doing this myopic retrospection on um, when we were this age... This is the things that we were doing. And we could not possibly ask our husbands to stay home from work if we were sick with kids. Interesting. And so we posted to the 25-year-old and go, like, what is the difference? She goes, we've never had anything hard. She goes, I feel it. I've never had to do. My parents made it so easy, and they still are making it easy for me. She goes, I don't know how to do hard things. See, the parents move into rescuers. When the kids don't want the parents to rescue, the parents become, they first feel like a victim, and then they move into a persecutor. And we've seen that often. And and it's not, the, the counterpart isn't that parents need to go make it hard for their kids. My parents just didn't get in the way of life. There was an expectation to work and buy things on your own. There was an expectation to work and pay for college. There was an expectation. And it wasn't like, it was it was implicit. It was not explicit because that's how life is. And somewhere as our generation of parents have turned into, but kids can't do that. So therefore we need to do it for them. And there's your um, 
catastrophizing, fortune telling, mm -hmm. mind reading. These are cognitive yeah. distortions based upon false narratives. So here's a quote out of my book. Um, we do not help our children by preventing them from falling. One learns how to recover from falling by falling. A skater moves forward by pushing left and right. People who have never experienced falling or failure are off balance. Can I give a really concrete example? Yeah, but I'm gonna, I have four more words to read. Okay. Without an awareness of their situation. Okay. Oh, going. sorry. <laughs> my father, credit to my dad. He loves skiing and he taught us kids to love skiing, but this is how he taught us. He put me on an oversized pair of wooden skis, put me on the hill and pushed me over. Right on, Dad. He he barely he basically pushed me into the snow, and then he said, "Now get up." And I was crying, I was sweating, I was frustrated. I'm like, "Wait, this looks so fun. This is miserable. I'm freezing. I've got snow down my neck the whole bit." And, I, and when you just said that, the whole fall, I'm like, "Oh my gosh, my dad, my dad threw me in the snow and said, "Now get up." <laughs> and I love skiing. I absolutely yeah, it's my favorite sport. Uh -huh. And um grateful to dad that he made it hard right from the get-go i'd like he's to like take, you can't ski if you can't get yourself i'd back like to up. take credit for teaching my nephew chris how to ski um <laughs> but we didn't have to throw him in the in the snow he did that all on his own or or in the puget sound <laughs> oh that's true yeah he just was a disaster waiting to happen <laughs> yeah, so. okay so back to the idea um the entire purpose behind life is so we can learn to connect, so we could feel this happiness, joy, and well-being. The ability to do that is contingent upon our abilities to know who we ourselves are. And if we're telling ourselves stories that aren't true, what I call a shadow, then we're going to behave according to that. And our mindset, just notice the energy. So I'm going to read it again and just pay attention to the energy. Um, I, the, this person's reading, sooner or later, you realize that no one cares. Then the question comes, why on earth would I waste my time with people whom I don't care about and who don't care about me? Because the real story is who don't care about me. Because she or he or they or we are so concerned that others reciprocate first, that others solve our problem. Because we've somehow got in this mindset that this is going to be taking care of us and that it's others' responsibility to make us happy. Yeah. What happens if they're just as busy trying to figure out their own problems and they're moving forward? The greatest, the greatest gift you can give others and yourself is in the service. And my argument's always been, I think helping people move or helping them build stuff or helping them baking some food or whatever, I think that's nice. And that's that me or that service do mentality that many religion and religious organizations do. But what I rarely see done is people teaching others how to give the greatest gift in life. And that's 15 minutes of undivided, neutral time with someone where that person can just talk about themselves and talk about life, knowing they won't be judged. What a wonderful gift that would be. The question here borders on that gift. That's exactly how you get out of the situation is you learn how to give that gift so you can get the reciprocity. You've got to first invest in that ability to move forward. So we covered a little bit last time about gratitude and 
um, advocate and awarenesses, IQ and EQ. There's our start. But I want to transition into this backstory um, about how to transition from first half of life to second half of life. And I remember this would be two or three weeks ago. I'm sitting at home. We were in our sacred hour, and I was doing some reading and writing and contemplating. And I was it was for two days I had this. It wasn't a melancholy one. What's that place between being heavy but being pretty excited because I'm learning something? I know what it is. I was in that wrestling mode. Like um, I'm wrestling with a thought. I'm wrestling mm-hmm. with a concept. I'm mm-hmm. wrestling with a new awareness, right? That's what was happening to me. I was wrestling. That's what I think mindfulness is. That's what I think prayer is. That's what I think when you share energy. You're wrestling. You're trying to get this. Anyway, so let me read just a, a little bit about this this uh, process I was going through. And I know, Sherry, you've, you've thought a little bit about what I've written here. So here's what I wrote. There are times in life where the world seems to hit pause and the reflection button is pushed. Time stands still and questions rain down like golf balls from heaven. Each question finds a new spot in my mind and my body to connect. Bruised and broken, I attempt to make sense of the questions and find relief in the wisdom of sages, prophets, and in principles that guide my seemingly feeble resolve to be the best I can be. Answers give me temporary relief. With time, these answers inspire hope that the pain will mitigate, that my answers will become a healing balm that balances my frustration in life and strengthens my determination to continue the fight. In my first half of life, I found energy looking for solutions outside of me. Family, church, leaders, government, organizations, strangers, and books. Of those mentioned, my my greatest respite came from books. There is something about reading a well-crafted sentence that drives a principle to the heart and plants a growing seed of strength. Second to my books were words on life that were shared for principle's sake and not because I was out of order or needed to be right. I don't know if that came off clear. When I hear someone speak eloquently, well thought out as an invitation to learn something, Mm -hmm. I'm I'm present. Mm -hmm. But when someone speaks from a holier-than-thou position, telling me what I have to do, challenging me in your face type thing, I don't get that message. The energy itself just hits a a wall, right? So it's a principle-based message message versus a personality-based message. Oh, wow. I'm going to write that down. Make a note of that. That was really good. Contrasting my books and principle-based sermons were the countless words of counsel given in environments shrouded with guilt and shooting. Such marked my first half of life. Despite a lifetime of searching, the most profound experiences were within the confines of my being and not from the outside in. Now, can you unzip that a little bit? Like, how is it that these profound experiences were coming from the inside of you, not the outside of you? I noticed that when someone would tell me what to do, Mm -hmm. I lacked the motivation. I didn't get context. And the, the message was delivered in a way that the energy didn't feel inviting. Now, I, I believe in God. And I believe God invites me to be happy, doesn't force me. He doesn't push me. That's a huge difference. 
I wasn't invited to be happy as a kid that I remember. And I remember when you and I got married, other than worrying if I could even make a living to support you, my biggest concern was I didn't exactly know how to be a dad. I mean, I had the experience of raising my sisters, but I'm a brother, really. What happens if I am totally responsible for that? How would I teach my children, right? Because you didn't have... And have an example. An example of a dad in your life. Right. And I really didn't have a lot of examples growing up where I emulated or wanted to emulate people that I respected as adults. Because they spent most of their time telling me what to do and think instead of asking me what I thought, teaching me a principle, and then inviting me into that arena to grow and to learn. But still, that was an outside, looking to the outside yeah. first. And so what I started realizing, and I, I can picture times in my life where I would, like I had this class in high school. It's when I first started reading. It was my senior year in high school. Um, I remember literally living an experience, having a visceral, energy-filled experience by reading a book. And I was studying history. And I was so enraptured in what was going on societally. It was World War II. Um, what was going on with the Germans? What was going on with the Dutch and the Poles? And I could feel viscerally a sense of movement within that. So I realized my imagination was absolutely on fire. Well, remember, I, you know, from when you first met, I was really trying. I thought I was logical. I thought it was reasonable and rational. I wasn't any of it, but that's my perception of myself. And so I came from a world where I was taught that emotions are weak. And I didn't realize that the power of the imagination, the power of healing from within um, was the power to change. That was brand new to me. And I didn't, even then, Jerry, I didn't have words. And so as this journey has continued, you know, as I've developed, you know, what I perceive a work, this willingness to be found has really transformed me. And again, I didn't have those words. I had to learn these words from Kenneth Bailey. Uh, but I would like to share a little bit about this idea of willing to be found in the time mm -hmm. we have left to, mm -hmm. to actually continue the answer to this question, why should I even try? Okay. Why should I even try to connect, even though I'm told it's so darn important? Right. Would you just read okay. this paragraph here, yeah. Sharon? So have you ever met a know-it-all or someone who always has to be right now, wouldn't it be fun to say something to them that is so pithy, so remarkable, or so profound that their only response is to plot your demise? Well, this is what happened to Jesus when he addressed the religious bullies of the day, the Pharisees. So the, the idea here is I've met many a bully in my life, and I would love to have come up with something that would have been so cool that I could have just slammed them, but that would have never gotten me anywhere, right? It was the sheer neutrality and righteousness of a man called Jesus that these bullies, they wanted to kill him. So the set, I'm going to set up a story here. And this is a story that I think um, when I heard the original way of doing it was really profound to me. So one of the challenges that the Pharisees had with Jesus is they didn't he didn't follow their immaculate perception of life. They perceived themselves to be perfected. They knew the law. They were brilliant IQ wise. They had very limited social skills. But uh, they were the bullies of the day because they were the ruling class. It's like politics today. I mean, you just think about what's going on in the United States of America right now. We got bullies on both sides of the, the scale. And we got people who are breaking the law on both sides of the scale. We have people who, when I look at this, 
How can I support either side because of the maladaptive behavior and the sheer ruthlessness and anger and the, the vitriol that is being perpetrated on both sides, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm not trying to take a side. I'm just trying to indicate on the fringes, we've got some cantankerousness. The Pharisees were the fringe. They okay. were the ones doing that. All right. And uh, what they didn't like was that Jesus hung around with sinners. So he says the following to them. And this is traditional first half of life behavior, by the way. So the Pharisees were engaged in shadow work. And he, meaning Jesus, spake this parable unto them, saying to the Pharisees, what man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them? To an American, what's the big deal? To the Pharisee, they wanted to beat him up. That statement alone got them so enraged. And here's the reason. And Kenneth Bailey teaches this. He says, the Pharisees came from a long line of, this is me, of intellectual and spiritual bullies. And then Kenneth Bailey explains, Arabic-speaking scribes struggled with the phraseology of the first line for over a thousand years. Notice the verbiage. What man of you having a hundred sheep if he has lost one of them? See, an Arabic translator would never say that. He would say, if one of them is lost. Spanish is the same way. I didn't miss the train. The train left or the train missed me. Mm-hmm. So it's like a, a teenager in the kitchen. You know, he's doing dishes, but he drops one in the china. Oh, I dropped the dish. But a Pharisee would say, the dr- dish jumped out of my hands. Okay, so that's where we're going with it. In the parable of the the lost sheep in Luke 15, this is what he says, and this is why I think it's so profound in healing. When the Pharisee, when Jesus said, if the shepherd loses a sheep, he he leaves the 99 and goes and finds the one. He doesn't leave them alone, which is what I used to think as a kid because no one told me differently. That makes sense. He just leaves the 99 sheep alone out in the wilderness, and he goes and plays hide and seek with this one lost sheep. That's not what happens at all. There's this assumption he's the only shepherd. That's an assumption. He leaves them with under shepherds, so they're in good care. But the sheep know there's a lost sheep. So he says to them, look at guys, um, Sherry's lost. I'm going to go find Sherry. So I'll be back. And so the shepherd actually knows where Sherry is because he's wandered these hills and brought his flocks to these hills for decades. Sheep are dumb. They get lost easily. And he knows where to find them. So what he does And if I'm a parent, by the way, and you're my daughter, and I know you're lost, and I know where you are, I'm going to march up to you. I'm going to grab you. I'm going to bring you back and say, I love you so much. And then I'm going to get mad at you. If you're my son, I might hit you. Then I'm going to restrict you. I'm going to get so angry. That's That's an American parental way of doing it, showing their love, right? They get angry, and they double punish. That's not what Jesus did. When he gets near the sheep, he stops a way off before the sheep sees him. And he takes his staff, his shepherd's staff, and he bow- he pounds it three times on a hard surface. And then he coos into this the staff, a special, a special sound that only he makes. Sheep since lambs have been trained to listen to the master's voice, the still small voice. If that sheep wants to be found, the sheep will bleat. Notice the difference. The shepherd invited the sheep to be found. If the sheep wants to be found, he's going to bleed. And then Kenneth Bailey teaches the cool principle of repentance. Repentance is the willingness or the acceptance to be found. It's really that straightforward. And there are many listeners who probably have a Christian bend. 
who have been in sermons or meetings where the leader calls everybody to repentance, right? Or we've been taught as Christians to proselyte, calling people to repentance. And our interpretation of repentance is to let you know that you're wrong. I'm going to try to get you to agree that I'm right, that you need to be fixed. That's not an invitation. That's agreement seeking. That's in the me pyramid. That's an unsolicited opinion and judgment. I don't believe that has anything to do with principles of any kind of behavior or any kind of religion. You invite people to be found based on principles. All right. What being found means you're going to come into the light. So Jesus now represents the light. If I'm willing to be found, I'm going to be found by light or what we call truth. So now we're going to remove religion just for a second. And we're going to say, so if you were to look at my desk right now, my wife has this nice big water bottle, a Contigo. That water bottle is going to represent the light. If I'm in my first half of life and I want to get to second half of life, I'm going to need to learn new tools in order to get there. If I'm in my first half, the closer I get to that light, the easier it is for me to see shadows that reflect off of me. Now, by definition, remember, shadows are false narratives. Depending on which way you're facing. If you're facing away from the light, you see the shadows. You can look over your shoulder. Sure. It's looking backwards. The shadow will still be there. Right. So I'm going to go over shadows real quick. So um, false narratives. So I've written, we've talked about them extensively on the show. So we have, I have no worth. It's my fault. I'm not lovable. I can't have emotional intimacy with people. I don't deserve. I can never be safe. I'm powerless, helpless, and hopeless, and I'm not good enough. All right. So we're going to take a break here, and we're going to get ready for the next segment. But this is a summary. If you want to be found, if you want to find happiness, joy, and well-being, if you want to discover who you yourself are, every philosopher from the beginning of time has says to know thyself. If you know yourself, you know God. If you know God, then you know yourself. So in other words, the only way to be found is to get into the light so you can see your shadow or your shadows. Mm -hmm. So I think we better quit there, and then I'm gonna we'll pick this up. And in we're the gonna next resolve way. what we do with those shadows. We want to resolve the shadows. How do you see the shadows? How do you recognize the shadows? Mm -hmm. And then how do you and why do you then reach out to people who seemingly don't care about you? So thank you so much for listening. We really appreciate it. Remember, if you're having a rough go, it's perfect. It's exactly what you need right now to come closer to integration, to figure you out, to find your identity. That's your authentic self. Perfect is a mistake that gets a retake, and we look forward to talking to you in the next segment. Doubt is a broken record that plays inside my head. I try to turn it down, but I can't quite drown it out. I'm tortured every day, face never-ending worry, pulling on my sleeve, so many times now I was this is Derek's O'Reilly Auto Parts story. After the third time jump-starting my car, I finally realized my battery was dying. So I stopped by O'Reilly to have it checked. They tested it right there in the parking lot. It was bad, real bad. But they helped me find the right battery for my car and even installed it for free. Now my car starts like new. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. 
En JCPenney sabemos que nos extrañas y nosotros te extrañamos aún más. ¿Pero qué pasa si te decimos que tenemos una tienda abierta todo el día, todos los días? ¡La tenemos! En jcp.com o en el app de JCPenney. ¿Quieres un traje de baño? ¡Lo tenemos! ¿Algo para estrenar este verano? ¡También! ¿Marcas exclusivas y tus marcas nacionales favoritas? ¡También! Visita nuestra página para los más recientes cupones y aprovecha envío estándar gratis en compras de $49 dólares o más. JCPenney. Aplican exclusiones. Detalles en la tienda o jcp.com.